0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, 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 good. Um, I don't know, you know, we all have benchmarks in our lives, milestones, and uh, they're supposed to be experiences related to those. So, you know, when you get married, you, you, you anticipate having a certain experience of what that's like to, to go through that ceremony, or if you're the husband to see your bride walking uh, down the aisle, or when you have kids, you know, what that, that is like, you know, to have a child come into the world, you know, all those, or grandkids, or whatever those experiences are. Um, there's all these like milestones in life that are associated with a certain way of feeling. And I think that idea, conceptually, uh, enters into our relationship with God as well. We feel like there should be an experience when we get baptized or when we rededicate our lives to God. Or maybe the first time we enter a church after a long time or whatever it is. There should be some sort of emotional experience. And I think we have that idea uh, related to our, our relationship with the Holy Spirit as well. What should the Spirit feel like? What should it feel like? What should the spirit, what should the experience of the spirit feel like? When, when this, this, this whole idea we've been talking about for the last mm, five weeks, four weeks, uh, what should it be like if I have, and I am operating under the influence of the spirit? What should that experience um, be? And if my experiences, emotional or otherwise, don't match up with what I anticipated, does that mean that I don't have the spirit? Does it mean that the spirit isn't working in me or whatever that is supposed to be? That, and I think that's a fair question for us to ask. And I think a lot of Christians have struggled with that idea of what is this supposed to feel like? And if I don't feel it, feel it, whatever it is, is something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? Did I miss something? Did I not cross a T or dot an I or did I not check a box that I was supposed to check? So there's a lot of assumptions about what that is. And I think we just need to talk about what that actually is. So, today, we are in part two of a two-part little uh, exploration of the book of John and what Jesus was saying about the Spirit. We went back to Genesis at the beginning of this series, and I'm not going to recap everything, but last week we talked about what Jesus taught about the Spirit. Not what he did, which there's a lot of, but what he taught about the Spirit. And uh, we're going to explore the second half of that today. So you remember last week in John, 25% of the book of John, which is not a short book, but 25% of that is one letter, or excuse me, one dinner, one dinner, one evening, John was like, this dinner was so important that we're going to focus nearly one quarter of the book on this one dinner and that's where all these things happen like Jesus washed feet and there's all these quotes that we love and they all come from the, that's where Judas uh, Jesus called Judas out and Judas left I mean we love a, a lot of what happened at that dinner but I don't think we realize that this is just one night um, and what we're exploring here what Jesus had to teach about the spirit was this one night as well so At the end of this dinner, or I don't know, maybe in the middle, who knows, maybe before the entree, maybe he wanted to give give them a little, uh, they had to get some food in their stomachs before he dropped some bad news. And he told them, told his apostles, people who had left their jobs to follow him. He said, by the way, guys, I'm leaving. And they're like, wait a second, we had plans for like, you know, we were supposed to, this is our career and we were going to follow you for the rest of our lives And Jesus is like, well, that might be shorter than you think, but you can still follow me. I just won't be here. And they're like, what are you talking about? They were completely confused. And so Jesus said, listen, it's actually good. Remember, we read this last week, John 16, verse 7. It's actually good. It is for your good. I tell you very truly. And he's like saying, listen up here. I'm not exaggerating. I tell you very truly. It is for your good that I am going away unless I go away the advocate will not come to you but I will go and I will send him to you so last week we talked about the advocate and that is a legal concept they didn't have lawyers like we do but if you got in legal trouble which happened you know just like it can happen today if somebody dumped you know uh, cut off a tree that was actually on your property and you wanted to sue them or whatever it was you would had to go to court and you didn't have a lawyer that you paid who had to pass a bar and go to a bunch of classes. You actually had to get like a buddy, a friend, that you thought might be influential and might know you well. And they came alongside you. They were your—they were like the person who walked you through this, this difficult situation. This difficult legal situation. A lot of um, Roman authors that you've heard of were actually... ...advocates, uh, because they were really good at speaking... ...so people would call on them a lot... ...and they would present themselves before the court... ...and they would say, my friend here is... ...he's the most wonderful human being... ...and and and then they would counsel with this person... ...here's what you need to do, here's step by step... ...what you need to do. So when Jesus is explaining the experience of the Spirit... ...he uses that term. He is our advocate... He is the friend who walks alongside us, put their arm around us, and walks us step by step through these difficult situations. Helps gives us, give us this, this, this minute by minute guidance. Now I think when we think of the spirit, man, you don't, don't correct me if I'm wrong, but you can just disagree mentally. I think we think of an emotional experience. Um, maybe uh, someone who is just sort of above it all, someone who is kind of unruffled by the everyday stresses of life, someone who just seems to you know, they just know scripture and, and just as they're walking through life it's just like the Bible just comes out of their mouth and and they it, they always have something for a specific situation, someone who's totally, and I realize this isn't Christian language, but, but we would describe it as someone who's like totally zen you know, just calm and cool and collected, maybe somebody who smells like essential oils all the time, you know, and the words like serenity and peace, that's kind of what, does, I think we feel like a person who has the spirit is just sort of floating above it all, and maybe that's not exactly what your concept is of the spirit. But I would guess it's something along those lines—a sort of emotional um, inner peace, inner calm, sort of experience—and that's sort of what we think. And we think if I don't feel that, then maybe I don't have the spirit. And we're looking at that person over there who feels like they've got it all together and they've got that emotional inner peace, calm—is that—and and they must have the spirit. That must it must be something like that. But that is not how Jesus describes the experience of the spirit and i think we're going to find what he actually says pretty surprising um and it's not what we would assume at all in this passage that we're reading we're going to read here the next few verses in a second but in this passage jesus gives us three different um illustrations or 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 references to what the spirit is and does and what that experience will be like and none of it is like this inner calm inner peace sense of energy or whatever it is that we might think has to do with the Spirit. So we're going to read these, um, and we're going to spend the most time on the first one because that's kind of what Jesus does, but we're going to go through three in total so you have a sense of the pacing of the sermon. John chapter 16, verse 8. John chapter 16, verse 8. When he comes, the Advocate, the Spirit of truth, when he comes, he will prove, that's good. Because that's the legal language that we're talking about. That this whole whole book of John actually has a lot of legal language. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. So legal language with proof. But then the word world. If you grew up in the church, you came across this word a lot. Worldly. The world. The world versus the church. The world versus God. Worldliness. All that ...is one big kind of like idea. And it's really shorthand in scripture... ...to describe a value system... ...that is antithetical toward the things of God. Um, It's just a a shorter way of describing like... ...hey, if this is not of God, then it's of the world. It's just a way of thinking, a way of acting... ...a way of reacting to life... ...that is antithetical towards God. The the way of the world is not going to produce the values of God... ...is essentially what they're getting at. And there's an important distinction here worldliness is not about um uh, us versus them it's not about people so, yeah, for example, like uh, in Star Wars, it's not about uh, the Jedi versus the Empire. It's about the force versus the, the dark side. It's about the ideology, not the individual. And this is really important. Maybe Cold War is a, is a better illustration for this demographic. It's not about Russia, uh, USSR versus the, the USA. It's not about, it's about communism versus democracy. It's about the ideology. Of these things. So, when he's talking about the world, it's about an ideology, not an individual. There are individuals who exhibit that ideology, but it's not about an individual. And that's really important to distinguish. I want to show you a picture of a gentleman by the name of Thomas Austin. I don't know if anybody here has heard of him, Thomas Austin. He was a British settler in Australia. And I just want to give you a couple of facts about uh, the situation I'm about to describe. Number one... Um, Australia did not have any rabbits. I know you weren't thinking like that's where he was going. Australia uh, does not have, did not have rabbits. They're not indigenous to the continent. But when the British settled, there were individuals who were thinking, you know what I really miss? I really miss rabbit hunting. So I'm going to introduce rabbits to Australia. And Thomas Austin is kind of famous for doing this. So he decided to release 24. 24 rabbits. ...just a few rabbits... ...onto his property. And uh, here's the quote... ...that has become legendary in Australia. The introduction of a few rabbits could do little harm... ...and might provide a touch of home. Now, what's the downside he's saying? What's the harm? Just release a few rabbits and w- w- what could go wrong? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked... ...because within about 10 years... Uh, ...there were 50 million rabbits in Australia... Because evidently rabbits reproduce like rabbits, and there's a lot of rabbits very quickly. Uh, within 50 years, 50 years, there were 10 billion rabbits in the continent of Australia. Now, uh, well, who cares? Just an, I mean, that sounds like a wonderful place to live. Just bunny rabbits everywhere, right? You just walk out your door and there's bunnies, and I don't know, this picture here looks like zombie rabbits to me. It looks a little frightening. But, but it, w- w- 10 billion rabbits, maybe we don't have a concept of that. But you know how much food it is required to feed 10 billion rabbits? And so rabbits just devastated the plant life in Australia. Well, once they started eating all the food, guess what happened to the other animals that also ate plants? They started dying off. In fact, scientists say rabbits are the number one cause of... Uh, um, what's the word? Going out of existence, whatever that is. Extinction in Australia. Rabbits, little, little bunny rabbits, number one cause, can you imagine that? What's the harm? A few little bunny rabbits. Now, once the plant cover is gone on the ground, then there's tons of soil erosion, which makes it hard to farm and do other things, but it also causes another ecological problem, dust storms. You guys have read about the Dust Bowl in the United States. This is an example of a dust storm in Australia, because there's no ground cover to keep the ground on the ground, and when the the wind starts stirring up because the rabbits have eaten all the, the, the ground cover, it turns into this. What's the harm? Just a few rabbits, no big deal. Even today, today in 2020, uh, they say it, it. The cost is about 113 million dollars per year as damage from these rabbits. Cute little bunny rabbits. A few rabbits could do little harm. The quote from one Australian historian is that this is the greatest ecological disaster in Australian history. You should read it. It's really funny to read about the things they did. They tried to build a 2,000-mile fence and then the rabbits just dug under it. Some of them hopped over it. Well, that didn't work. Some of them just destroyed the fence. This is true. I'm a little off topic, but I'll get right back on it because I got so into reading about this. They introduced, like, biological warfare to the rabbits. They introduced a virus to try to kill off the rabbits. And it worked on some, but then the other rabbits just got stronger... And so now that there's all these like super strong, biologically engineered rabbits running around Australia, it's the craziest thing to read about. Zombie rabbits. A few rabbits could do little harm. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And and there's a reason I'm telling you about rabbits in Australia. We talked about this a few weeks ago because in scripture, humans are often, and, and, and the particulars are different, but humans are often presented with this particular dilemma where God offers them a choice and he says, here's my idea of human flourishing... of human vibrancy and life and what is good for humanity... and what will give you meaning and purpose and happiness... Here's my idea and here's the guidelines that you have to live by. You need to be honest with one another. You need to love one another. You need to be sacrificial to one another. These are the things that will provide for human flourishing. And if you choose that path, you will be rewarded by life. And... You can do this thing. You can define your own ideas of right and wrong, and your own way of thinking, and your own uh, your your own ideas of uh, of what will give you purpose and meaning in life. You can do that. You can pursue that, and that will lead to death. And so, throughout Scripture, you see that over and over and over again. You see this opportunity where where God is either saying you have life before you, or you have death before you. And 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 if you listen to me, you will have life. And so these human, it's not like it, 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 what what God is saying or what the scripture Scriptures are saying in these terms, it's saying like here's God's way of doing things and here's the world's way of doing things. And the world's way of doing things are things like indulgence and individualism and sexual freedom and God's way of doing things are things like commitment and sacrifice and contentment and community. And he's saying the world's way of doing this is not going to lead you the way you want to go. The world is not going to give you what they're promising to give you. What that ideology is promising is not at the end of that road. These, what he's saying in John is he's saying the world's idea of sin and righteousness and judgment are wrong. They're wrong. The things that we read in books and podcasts and see in movies and read in newspaper articles... ...claiming this is how you can achieve self-fulfillment and happiness... ...if it's from the world, it's wrong. Wrong. ...is what John is saying. If it goes in in contradiction to to God... ...it's wrong. Now, it's not like the world... ...isn't defining morality. I I know I grew up with the idea that... ...you had the church... ...and we were trying to do the right thing in the church... ...and they were trying to walk us down the straight and narrow... ...and the world was just like, do whatever you want. No, the world cares very much about morality. You literally... ...I don't want you to do it right now... ...but if you open up uh, any news aggregate app... All those headlines are going to be some form of some claim about morality. This is right, this is good, or this is bad, and this shouldn't happen. I mean, any, if you watch news at all, if you watch primetime news, those talking heads are making moral claims. They're saying this is the way our country should go because this is the right thing. This is better for people. And they have somebody else on there that's saying this is not the way the country should go. So, so it's, our world is full of moral imperatives. They're full. Our world is full of claims... ...about sin and righteousness and judgment. And the question of Scripture is this... ...whose ideas will we trust? Are we going to trust God's ideas about sin and righteousness and judgment... ...or are we going to trust the world's ideas? At the garden, remember at the garden, are we going to eat the fruit... Or are we going to define things our own way? At Mount Sinai, are we going to wait for Moses to come back with the guidelines from God? Or are we going to make uh, um, an idol out of our earrings here? Jesus in the desert. Are we going to listen to God's uh, ideas about what is right and what is wrong? Or are we just going to kind of do what this enemy is asking us to do? John 16, 8. When he comes, the spirit, the advocate, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. What's the harm in just eating a bite of the fruit? I mean, what's the harm in just a a little idol? What's, really, it'll make a few people feel better. What's the harm? What's the harm? Who am I hurting? Well, what's the harm in releasing a few rabbits in the continent of Australia? What's the harm? It doesn't matter. It's not going to hurt anything. Nothing's going to go bad. But that's how sin always, always, always operates. It's always worse than what it promises. And like i said the world is not saying there's no such thing as sin the world is in fact listen the world is very concerned with enforcing morality we have a term for it now that didn't used to exist but there's this term called cancel culture that is enforcing morality and there's some good things about that there's some calling uh, calling out power for its misbehavior but that's enforcing a view of morality the world is very concerned with that it's not like the world is like go do whatever you want the world is saying no this is the right thing to do and God's saying nope that's not the way to go John says the world uh, will be proven wrong and nobody likes to be proven wrong it's painful it's embarrassing um, is the world always wrong? I think this is an important point to make. Is it always? Is what we see in the news and what we read in books and what we hear on podcasts, is it always wrong, always antithetical toward God? No. No, of course it's not. Especially when it's informed by scriptural principles. Of course it's not. But, and sometimes our culture, you've seen this too, sometimes our culture wakes up to a moral reckoning... Um, ...and just says, hey, we've been allowing this thing that is wrong for a long time to happen... ...and, the, and our whole society kind of wakes up and says, we can't do that anymore. That's wrong. But and they're, and they're right in many cases. And sometimes Christians are really confused because they're hearing this moral stance on like TV... ...and they're like, oh, I'm supposed to be opposed to that thing... ...but that thing is saying something that I agree with. And it gets really confusing for Christians to try to sort all that out. But often, even when the world is right... It is right in the wrong way. Even when the world is right, it's right in the wrong way. Um, I listened to this, uh, this author by the name of John Ronson uh, give a, a talk about... Um, well, he used this example of this low-level uh, PR employee at a company. Low-level, nobody with power, nobody in the spotlight, not a celebrity, not somebody who... You know, just some, some nobody... She was getting on an 11-hour flight, and she tweeted a really tasteless joke right at the beginning of the flight. Just some dumb joke. It it was bad. Tone-deaf, you know, it was bad. And she turned her phone off and settled in for the long flight. Well, what happened was, during the flight, unbeknownst to her, because her phone's off... ...some more famous, more influential person saw that, was upset about what she had said... ...and retweeted it to their followers, condemning it. And during the course of this 11-hour flight, this woman, who had 170 Twitter followers at the time... ...so not much of an audience, just a small group of people tweeted something silly, shouldn't have said it. But by the time, before she had landed, her company had fired her. They hadn't told her yet, obviously, because they couldn't get a hold of her, but they had fired her. Her name and address had been made public so that people uh, would know where she lives and other companies wouldn't hire her. Both her and her family, again, she didn't know it yet, had received death threats. In fact, this went so viral that people at the destination airport showed up at the airport to take pictures of her as she landed to to just watch uh, her world kind of crumble, and people were like tuned in to this, millions and millions of people were tuned in to this woman's downfall. Now, was culture right that she had done something wrong? Yes, she had done something stupid and wrong and immoral, and the culture was right. But what culture said to her is that, "You are a worthless human being." You do not deserve to be employed. You do not deserve... Your family doesn't deserve to live. You don't deserve to live. That's what the culture communicated to her in these extremes... And that's what the world does. They are right. That was right. She shouldn't have said that. But culture didn't provide a path toward reconciliation or redemption. And of course, this woman immediately upon landing, she was getting all these messages and texts from people saying, I'm so sorry to hear what's happening to you. And she had no idea. And once the reality of what was going on and that her world was falling apart began to dawn on her, and of course, she was tweeting out apologies, but it didn't matter. There's no pathway toward redemption in the world there is only condemnation so even when the world is right it is right in the wrong way the world says you are worthless you do not deserve to live which ironically not to get too like isn't that what the bible says the wages of sin is death right that's what the bible says the world got that right The world was right. You do not deserve to live because of what you had done. Of course, it seems a little bit extreme. The Spirit says what you did is wrong... ...but there is a path toward redemption. The gift of God, Romans 3, 23, is eternal life... You do deserve death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's the difference between what the world says claims about morality and what we claim about morality. We claim that there's a path back. And without that path back, then there's no hope. There's nothing to look forward to. She deserved to suffer consequences for her sins. But the Spirit says, actually, you also... I'm going to give you the gift of... Not that you deserve it, but the gift of redemption... Um, This is a paraphrase of a quote that I've heard before, and I apologize, I've forgotten the source, so whoever said it originally doesn't get the credit this morning, but this is one of the hardest lessons I feel like I am still learning. But this quote hit me so hard um, when I heard it. The, The quote is, Stop running from the conviction of the Spirit. And we run because it's painful. It's painful to have to admit that there's dark corners of our heart it's painful and i don't mean admit that generally where we say i'm just human where we actually verbalize the darkness in our hearts sometimes to another human being to say this is what i have done this is what's in here it's painful to admit that we are wrong but and we run from that conviction but the spirit isn't trying to condemn us he's trying to rescue us and that's the, the difference between the spirit and the world. The spirit will hurt us in order to heal us. All right. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 12. Let's go on there. John 16, verse 12. He goes, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, which is kind of funny when you think about like, what are you talking about? I have much more. You said you're leaving. I have much more to say and you can't bear it. Oh, what, what are we supposed to do, man? Um, but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you in all truth he will not speak on his own he will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come um any of you ever heard of the dunning kruger effect dunning kruger effect it's uh it's uh, it's something i think a lot of us intuitively know but some scientists put it together but it's the idea that Uh, essentially, the less a person knows about something, the more confident they feel in the knowledge they have of that thing. And the more a person knows about something, the less confident they feel in the knowledge about that thing. Let me give you an example. Einstein, who I think was a smart guy, we can agree, he said, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Um, Socrates, who's also a smart guy, uh, I think, The only true wisdom is when you know nothing. And that's, he's saying like, there's so much I don't get. And that's true knowledge. Paul, the apostle, smart guy. He says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. That's, so if you think, yeah, I've got this figured out. Average people like you and me, we say, oh, I am way above average. That's our claim. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is that, in fact, this has been across all like disciplines, vocations, you know. I, and I don't know if they have done it in churches, but that would be pretty interesting. But it's the idea that the bottom 25% of people in an organization uh, rate themselves in the top 25% of that organization. Maybe a simpler way of thinking about it is 88% of drivers think that they're above average, which... ...can't be true, right? Because you're the only above-average driver... ...and everybody else is a dummy... ...who somehow got their license. Average people. I'm way above average. So it's not just confidence... ...it's clueless confidence. You know what I mean? We've all seen that. We've all seen that. We've probably all been it... ...whether or not we realize that. And I think this is actually true in Christianity as well... ...because we tend to confuse... ...I heard it... ...because we listen to so many sermons... ...so many classes... Chapels, devotionals, podcasts, read books, we tend to confuse, oh, I've heard it, with, I got it. And the ironic thing is, thinking, I got it, prevents us from hearing it, which is why Jesus constantly said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said in John chapter 9, verse 39, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind, people who don't think that they know, will see, and those who quote unquote see will become blind. Well, this Really offended the Pharisees that he was talking to, and you're like, "Are you saying we're blind too?" And Jesus is like, "Well, you claim you can see, so condemnation's on your own head." So, in other words, with this experience of Jesus, first, uh, first off, the first experience of Jesus is the pain of conviction. It's not inner peace, it's not inner calm, it's the pain of conviction. But the second experience of the Spirit is a disorientation where the Spirit humbly and gently and kindly reminds us that we don't got it. That we have a lot to learn. That we have a long way to go. And the Spirit graciously helps us understand that we need guidance. That we are lost. The experience of the Spirit is that moment when we have finally decided we are going to stop and ask for directions. That's not a fun thing to do for proud people. But that is the experience of the Spirit guiding us into all truth. The spirit doesn't produce know-it-alls the spirit produces students students The funny thing is is it's rarely like new truth that gets us. It's rarely something new that we're we're experiencing. So in in years of youth ministry, you know, we would pack up all the kids. Of course, you know, I'd teach them every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, and then we'd pack them up and we'd take them to like some camp or some retreat or something, and there would be a speaker at that retreat, or maybe there would be one of the counselors at camp would give like an evening devotional around the fire, and you know, then I would talk to one of the kids later, and they would say, (gasps) That what that guy said at the fire was so powerful. It just, I mean, he told me that Jesus loved me. I had never heard that before. And I'm sitting there thinking, never heard that before? What are you talking about that? I tell you that all the time. All the time. I've told you specifically like 20 dozen times that Jesus loves you, but somehow this one thousand and first time when this counselor at camp said it, it got through, and I think that's the experience of the Spirit. It's not new, it's the same thing, but finally we have changed enough that we are receptive, and the Spirit creates a receptivity in us to truth, and this is so important that we understand it's because sometimes I think we, we think, well, I read the Bible. You don't stop reading the Bible. Every time you read the Bible, it's not that the Bible's going to be any different. It's going to be exactly the same, but you will be different. And different things will hit you. And different verses will hit you. I was knocked off my socks. I don't know if that's a saying. Knocked out of my socks? Knocked off my feet? Anyway... By a verse in Hosea that I had never seen before. Never seen before. Of course, I had seen it before. But man, the Spirit just like drove that verse into my heart in a way that it just was mind blowing. I mean, and this is six months ago, and I'm still like constantly thinking about that verse because I was finally ready for it, not because it was new truth. All right, final thing, final thing the Spirit does. John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me. because it is from me he will receive what he will make known to you Um, there are very few people that know what goes into a uh, sunday morning what making a sunday morning happen i know some people are like yeah you just show up at church right patrick and you just get up there and you just talk and you know whatever you just make it up on the spot right Uh, maybe some guys do but i don't have that that skill but I'm not even talking about that. I'm ta- not talking about sermon prep. I'm just talking about, like, behind the scenes. Uh, in fact, and I want to draw attention to some guys that don't want attention drawn to them. Our sound booth back here, um, they actually, you would not believe the stuff that has to go on back there. Like, if you were to leave services and peek back there, you're like, this is crazy. The amount of, like, cords and connections and computers. Like, how, why do they have, there's like five monitors back there. I mean, we're a small church. Why are there five monitors and about... 30 miles of cable back there because everybody thinks it's about what happens up here but those guys have the power did you know that they could literally they could shut off my mic and I would have to shout louder and maybe you could still hear me but they could put up different slides they could put up some cartoon behind me and the audience would just not pay any attention to me those guys back there have the power. I mean, we think it's about what's going on up here, but those guys are the ones making sure it happens. In fact, the best thing for them back there is if on a Sunday morning, nobody ever notices them. That means everything's gone really well. The Spirit is the spotlight guy, and he's shining a spotlight on Jesus. He will, the advocate, the Spirit of Truth, will glorify me. He will glorify me. The spotlight guy doesn't get in the spotlight himself. The spotlight guy is doing his job when you never even notice him. And so the spirit, experience of the Spirit in your life is when you're thinking more about Christ. When, you're, when your desire is to be more like Christ. When you're becoming more like Christ. That's the Spirit. The Spirit isn't trying to make you more like himself. The Spirit is trying to glorify and make you, transform you into the image of Jesus. That is the experience of the Spirit. We're doing this whole series on the Spirit because it's been tragically neglected. But the Spirit doesn't really want attention. The Spirit doesn't ask us to pray to the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't ask us to sing songs to the Spirit. The Spirit wants to give the focus to Christ. All right, so here's the conclusion. The Spirit convicts. The experience of the Spirit is that the Spirit convicts. He hurts, but he heals. The Spirit guides. He reminds us that we don't have it all figured out, and that's a good thing, and it's disorienting, but it's good. The Spirit focuses us on Christ. So, do we have the Spirit? Well, have you ever felt the pain of conviction when you did something wrong? That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Have you ever been reminded that you don't have it all together? That's a good sign. Have you ever been focused on Christ to the degree that you realize there is a long path ahead of you to becoming like him? That's a good sign. All right, there's lots more we could get to, but we are out of time. We're out of time. We're going to talk about Christmas next week. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of spirit, by the way, in the Christmas story that we never pay any attention to. But we'll talk about that next week. If you have questions, love them. Bring them to me. We'll do a Q&R two weeks from now. Uh, we got some great questions, but keep bringing them. It's awesome. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed father in heaven lord we're grateful for uh, being able to gather this morning uh lord i just pray that as christians who who constantly are 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 hearing sermons or hearing devotional thoughts or 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 listening to christian music or or reading scripture i just pray that that god you would help us never to feel confident in our own righteousness but that you would constantly remind us that our righteousness is from christ I pray for the Spirit in this room, among these people, Lord. I pray for the pain of conviction, the power of confession, and and the healing of reconciliation, Lord. I pray that for us, even though that that it hurts and it is hard. I pray that the Spirit would draw us to Christ's image. And I pray that for us as a church family. Lord, convict us, guide us, help us focus on Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Go with the spirit.